This morning, uh, before I ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, let me just remind you of a, a couple things. First of all, uh, we have heard about some of the signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John. This morning, we're going to read about the feeding of the 5,000. Now, there's something to be noted about this. One of my favorite commentators, J.C. Ryle, simply says this, This may be the most remarkable miracle of the Lord. It alone, along with the account of the crucifixion and the resurrection, is the only one found in all four of the Gospels. This demands special attention. And so that it demands special attention, I would call you to give it your special attention as you stand for the reading of God's Word. Please stand. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii, or a half a year's wages, will not buy enough bread that each one may just have a bite. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so, all, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your word, the divine and inspired and errant word that you have given us through the work of your Holy Spirit and those who have recorded it. And now by that same Holy Spirit, we ask you, Lord Jesus, as you broke bread by the Sea of Galilee, you would break this bread of life to us, that life might be given either anew or renewed in each one of us, that you would feed us even to the fullest extent of our appetite. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. For those of you who like to follow, you'll find an outline on, on page 5. 
But let me set the scene a little bit for you. This is all taking place just after the mission where Jesus sent his disciples into Judea to preach the gospel. And returning from that mission, Jesus finds out about the murder of his cousin, John the Baptist, at the hands of Herod. And it's apparent that Jesus and his disciples have withdrawn, if you would, for a spring break by the lake. The other parallel accounts make this clear to us. If, if you would, this is going to be a, a portrait of, of Jesus' spring picnic with his disciples. Now, as they come to seek to be recharged and refreshed because of the signs and the miracles that Jesus had been doing on the 6th, over the hill, sort of tune in your imagination, over the hill and through the grass comes a crowd. Now the text this morning says there were 5,000 men. The parallel passages say that didn't count the women and the children. So what we were talking about in this crowd is not 5,000 people, maybe 10, and probably somewhere around 15,000 people are coming towards Jesus. It's not a crowd, it's a, a mob that's coming towards them. And as Jesus sees them, we're told he has compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. And so being who he was, we're told that he begins to teach them and he begins to minister to them and heal the sick. All that were sick came to him and he was healing them. And all of a sudden, the disciples are saying, so much for spring break. The lines, I bet, were long. Crowd control was a challenge. And as the daylight was fading and the day dragged on, Jesus asks a question to his disciples. They're in a remote place, 15,000 people. He says to his disciples, where are you going to get enough money to feed this crowd? Why would he do that? Where are we going to get enough money to feed this crowd? Now I presume the disciples probably didn't have a chance to get their own lunch. And so Jesus asks and poses this question. In fact, it's sort of an overwhelming question because you can see the reaction we first get from Philip. And so the attitude of the disciples might have been a little sort of out of sync at this particular point. This is a massive disturbance and interruption. And so if you were one of the disciples, when Jesus was asked, asked that question, would you say, well, we're going to be fortunate if, if we can even have enough resources to give these people just a bite of food, just a, just a little bit. And maybe you wouldn't be thinking about giving them a, a banquet. A bite would be good enough. And so we have this question posed. What would we do if we were confronted with a similar situation? Would we think of giving people just a bite? Or would we think that Christ could provide a banquet? So why did Jesus choose this particular occasion to perform this miracle? Let me suggest to you that there are four reasons given to us in the text this morning. First of all, in verse 6, we see very plainly stated 
that Jesus was testing his disciples. He did this to test his disciples. He wasn't just testing Philip. He was testing all of his disciples. All of the disciples need tested. In fact, I would say to you, untested disciples are no disciples at all. All disciples are tested. The master tests every one of us, me and you. And in testing them, what was he testing them for? The first thing he was testing them for was for compassion. The compassion that he had on them when he saw them coming over the hill. It wasn't a disturbance for him, it was a great opportunity. And so he heals all that are sick. And he ministers to them. And he teaches them. He was testing them to see if they would have his kind of compassion. In fact, the kind of compassion that he would show on probably part of this mob that wound up being part of the mob that was crucifying him when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I think all of us need tested for compassion. You see what Philip does when he's asked, where can we get money to feed this group? He reaches in his pocket, gets out his iPhone, switches it to the calculator mode, and starts running the numbers. How can we do this? It's going to take a half a year's salary to buy enough bread just to give people a morsel. This is overwhelming. Uh, we can't quite get it done. You know, I think when we're met with challenges a lot of times, our hearts aren't that compassionate. We start calculating what it will cost us maybe to get involved in a particular situation. But that's not what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for compassion like his. And in fact, we can even have a sort of a spot check on our own compassion this morning. Just a little one. And don't ask anybody to raise their hand. But how many of you before this morning have prayed for the Christians in Ukraine? Did we have compassion on them? Did we think about them? Were, was our reaction toward them? And that church that was mentioned in the prayer was basically the work of Presbyterian missionaries from our own mission to the world that worked in forming that denomination in the Ukraine. So he was testing them to see if they had compassion, and he's testing us to see if we will be compassionate like he was compassionate to them. You know, it sort of reminds me of the old joke of the pig and the chicken. The pig and the chicken are walking down the road together and they see a homeless man that obviously hadn't eaten for a long time. And the chicken says to the pig, let's give that man a ham and egg breakfast. And the pig says, well, that might be compassion for you, but that's sacrifice for me. That's going to cost me something. And so he was testing them for compassion, but he's also testing them for something else. He was testing them for faith. And we all need this kind of test. It's very interesting to me that in parallel accounts, just after the feeding of the 5,000, there's a relation of the incident as they're traveling to Jerusalem. They come to a Samaritan town. And you recall what David told us in previous sermons about the uh, real anger and the antipathy between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the Samaritan refuses to receive Jesus and his disciples. And James and John, those stalwarts, what do they say? 
They say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on this town? Lord, how about an airstrike on that town? There was no compassion. And a lot of times when we see a mob that's coming towards us, and a mob that's going to disturb our lives and our routine and what we have, compassion is not our first reaction. So in the first place, he was testing them to see if they had compassion. Secondly, he was testing them for faith. It was an overwhelming challenge and an overwhelming opportunity. What I am sort of surprised at is that none of them said, Lord, don't you remember what you did at the wedding in Canaan and Galilee? Can't you do something like that here? But all four of the accounts in the gospel writings do not mention that they said anything like that at all. There was just silence. And both tests proved that they needed more compassion and that they needed more faith. They were just like us. The mob had thrown them off their game. There's a mob coming at us. Have you seen it? It's the mob of modern secularism. It's everywhere. If you've ever read any of the Humanist Manifestos, they're put out by a, an organization known as the American Humanist Association, and their motto is, good without God. Everything's going to be good if it's without God. And we see that mob coming at us, and I think... I know from my own case, when I see that mob and I see what they're planning, what they're wanting, what they're advocating, my reaction is in the category of James and John. I'm an old soldier, and I tend to act like that sometimes. Can't you do something like that now to bring us relief and bring victory to your word? No, it just proves that I need tested for both compassion and faith, there's absolutely no question about it in my life or probably in yours. This mob that's coming wants us to say it's okay what God declares evil is good. It wants to do away with things like family, church. It wants to, if you would, declare that all those things that God has established, like obvious things like gender, are no longer matter. It wants to change everything. And when we see that mob, whether it's in our schools or our institutions or wherever, is our first reaction compassion? Is our second reaction faith that God can handle this? Well, God was testing them and God is testing us today in the same kind of situation. And so, we have to ask ourselves, what was Jesus doing besides testing? He was, secondly, showing them his salvation. They didn't know what he was going to do, but he knew exactly what he was going to do. Verse 6 tells us, I can handle this. He knew what he was going to do. It was a lot like Egypt. God's people were in captivity in Egypt. Pharaoh was king and he ruled the, ruled the world. Can God handle this? Of course he did. It's like the early church in Rome. 
Caesar ruled and he demanded allegiance and even worship. Could the church possibly survive Rome? Caesar didn't survive, but the church did. And so Jesus was revealing, if you would, his salvation in this situation. And as he reveals it, he's revealing his love in his salvation, what he would do. Jesus is not going to provide just a bite. He's going to provide a banquet. 15,000. Now, somebody once told me when you're preaching, make sure you put the cookies on the bottom shelf where the children can get them, the giraffes can bend their necks. So sometimes I resort to simple props. I have, fi I have five barley cakes and there is actually barley in these and, and barley was uh, food for the poor and that's not necessarily poor food but it was food, food for the poor and I've got a can of sardines <laughs> so you're, are you all ready for lunch now John's a rational guy with these five barley cakes, and I think there's like five sardines in here, can I give everybody a big lunch? Would something have to happen to these things to provide everybody more than they could eat? There would have to be a multiplication of these resources. They would have to be, if you would, greatly multiplied. And it's clear that what is being recorded for us here is a, a miracle of Christ's work showing his love in providing for people, providing for his people. Now, over the years, time and time again, this miracle is sought to be explained away. Oh, this wasn't really something that happened. What it really was was a moral example. Jesus and the disciples started sharing their lunch and that inspired everybody else in the crowd to open their igloo coolers and get out their lunch and start sharing it and we're supposed to believe that that's really what happened here that it wasn't a miracle the fact of the matter is the passage says it's impossible to believe that because not only that was it multiplied it was multiplied so much that there's 12 bushel baskets full of scraps picked up from this afterwards so they would all understand and in so doing Jesus not only demonstrates his love in salvation, but his power to save. Who can do that? Who can feed 15,000 people with five barley loaves and a couple dried fish? Do you think it's any mistake that the Bible begins with the book of Genesis? In the beginning, God. There was nothing, and there was God, and there was all creation. And then the Gospel of John begins the same way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. What's the point? The point is that the God of this Bible, the God of this Gospel, is the God who made everything so he can do anything he wants to accomplish his purposes in your life or in his world. He is not limited. And those who come at us with the philosophies of secular humanism basically say there is no room for miracles. 
Everything must be explained rationally. There is no God who can enter into this world and change things at his will the way he wants them to be changed. That's why the Bible begins with Genesis. That's the way John, that's why John begins the way it begins. You know, we don't need miracles. What we need is a miracle worker. We need the great miracle worker. For where we're in the grave, we will need a miracle beyond imagination. A reconstitutive miracle that will make us new from head to toe as the world is made new from head to toe. Not just changing bread and multiplying fish, but changing everything. And so in this miracle, Jesus is demonstrating his power. And what this really tells you and tells me, unless you really see this as a miracle, deny all attempts to try to explain it away and say, this is what happened. There is no great salvation. There will be no great hope. There will be no new heavens and no new earth. We will have nothing. But because our God is the creator God who can work all miracles, we have a great hope. We have a great reward. We have a great salvation because our God is the creator, redeemer, God. And so the picture is Jesus taking these small things, giving thanks, breaking them, giving them to his disciples, and watching his disciples distributed. I imagine that the multiplication takes place as the disciples are handing the food to the people. They get the pieces from Jesus, they hand it to the people, it becomes more, and it becomes more, until so much is there that everybody that wants a lot to eat gets all they want to eat, and there's 12 basketfuls left over. And as we watch that, we see that Jesus is clearly calling his disciples to serve. Barley may be food for the poor, but it's not poor food. What Jesus was breaking was the bread of life. And sharing the gospel is essentially one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. Me, a beggar, telling you, beggars, where you can find bread that satisfies, bread that lasts, if you would, until eternal life. So Jesus is calling us to serve humbly. He didn't serve it himself. He gave it to his disciples. He said, go, serve these 15,000 people. Do it. Humbly, taking what I have put in your hands, giving it to them, and letting my power multiply it until their, their eternal nourishment. And he's asking them to serve faithfully. Do it until they're all fed. Until they're not just fed, but they're all satisfied. And then after they're all fed and they're all satisfied, go clean it up. Go pick it up since nothing will be wasted. Serve humbly. Serve faithfully. And remember, 
what I did this day because not too far from now you're going to be having bread I put in your hand to take to the world to break in the world I'll multiply it even to the end of the age but be ready to take it and to serve humbly and even faithfully unto death Christ puts the gospel in the hands of his church in the hands of his people and the question is is it enough is the gospel of Christ going to be enough for whoever comes into your life or whoever comes through those doors will it be sufficient is Christ by his power able to multiply it under the salvation of an untold number which no man can number he can it's sufficient for every man woman boy and child that will come to Christ it is enough so what do we have to serve sinners what do we have to offer them just a bite or do we have a banquet to offer them we have a banquet to offer them and so Jesus as he presents this gospel as he works this miracle the fourth thing that we see that he's telling us that he's calling us to believe this is one of the seven signs in the gospel of John and it's clear what John intends by including these signs we're told in the 30th verse of chapter 20 says Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name you see the signs point to the Savior they all point to the Savior that you may have faith that you may have life that you may believe that this is the Christ the one that God has sent into the world that we might not perish but have eternal life two weeks ago tomorrow I went to a memorial service of a Christian lady who had suddenly come down with COVID and then unexpectedly had complications in that COVID and then died and went to be with the Lord. And at the memorial service, the pastor read an excerpt from her will. And in her will she said this, at my funeral service, now this, this is amazing because this woman was relatively young, vivacious, and she put this in her will years before you would not even normally anticipate that she would die he said at my funeral service I desire that there be worship I desire that there be a clear gospel message given I desire that there be an invitation to come to Christ be given and I desire that everybody in that church that would be coming to my service would know Jesus Christ as their 
Lord and Savior. That's the desire of the Apostle John. That's my desire today. If none of that happens, what I say, I say in vain. But I don't believe these words are in vain. I believe they're powered by the Holy Spirit. Inspired by the Spirit, applied by the Spirit, and calling anyone here today who needs a renewal of their faith or new faith for the first time to come to Christ and find out that he has enough for you to fill you up, to satisfy you all the days of your life, even until eternity. This is the faithful provision of the worker of miracles, the God of creation, who provides all that his people need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you did on that day. We thank you for what you did on the cross to make it real that we can look to you this day and know that you will fill us and satisfy us and give us life day in and day out faithfully new mercies every moment we pray that we might remember this and rejoice in it and we ask this in Christ's name amen